This podcast discusses the true events of a series of bombings that took place in the mid-80s around Salt Lake City, Utah. And due to its mature subject content, it may not be appropriate for small children. Also, the hosts of the Rotten or Righteous podcast want to make it clear that no disrespect was intended toward the victims of this bombing or their families. Listener discretion is advised. This week on a super serious true crime edition of the Rotten or Righteous podcast, we answer a super serious true crime question. What did you observe out there? A deer getting ready to eat my Easter lilies. <laughs> and you stopped. And I was going to yell it. I was going to yell it, said deer, but when I opened the window as I did, they ran. We never had this problem before. I know, but all of a sudden, snicker, snicker, wink, wink. It's the Mormons. They're hacking me. I, I believe it. Ever since this podcast started, I have nothing but Mormon ads in my Facebook feed. <laughs> That's because you keep looking up Mormon history. I look out my door at night. I just see two men in short, white sleeve button-ups. Welcome to Rotten or Righteous. The podcast that is so tired of murderers getting attention that they want that we recorded three episodes of a podcast giving a murderer the attention he wants. <laughs> what? That's <laughs> <laughs> just a long way to say hypocrisy. It's running rampant. <laughs> All right, with me today, as always... I'm going to put him in the most sinister light possible. Luke Taylor. Yes. Don't you do that every episode? I do my best. Along with Luke, the poor man didn't know. He didn't know he was giving a blessing to Satan, but it wasn't his fault. He was doing what he thought was the right thing. He had no idea it was Satan lying there. Scott Judge. The poor man. (laughs) And me, I'm Zach Geiler. And today was the first day of my entire life that muscle atrophy has ever made me smile. But we'll get to that in just a moment. (laughs) I gotta go look that up now because I would be curious. That's kind of what happened to the Joker. No, Scott, that's you didn't watch this episode, did you? No, I did. I did watch this episode. Oh, but you watched it three weeks ago, and so you don't remember what happened. No, that's not true. We're allowed to watch the episode on Thursday, so I watched it on Thursday. Mister, oh, uh, yeah, but and don't you remember that second episode, the door that she couldn't go into? <laughs> I, I sure don't remember that, Scott. And then I'm watching it yesterday. Oh, that's why he mentioned it. <laughs> I really thought that was from the first episode, actually, and when I did watch the third one, I'm like, oh, I'll be okay to mention that. It's already been said. No. I was wrong. I do, uh, before we begin, I want to explain that if you are watching these documentaries along with us and you look back and you go, well, 
They kind of gave Mormons a hard time because of the salamander letter. I want you to know that I'm just as betrayed as the people in this documentary when it comes to Mark Hoffman and his discoveries. <laughs> because I did this the way I promised these two yahoos that I was going to do this, and that is watch them an episode at a time. So that first episode, they really did send a lot of red herrings out to kind of... They, they painted Mark Hoffman as the bomber until the bomb went off, and then it kind of made you rethink everything. So... Like I said, we're just trying to experience this episode by episode. All right. Also, I wish I would have remembered this story last week, but I I completely blocked this out of my memory for some reason until we finished recording last week's podcast. When you've got the guy on the street with with Hoffman with his little consecrated oil, commanding him to uh, mm-hmm. to to live. Yep. I have been anointed. By Mormons, and I completely forgot about this. Really? Do tell. 100% true story. During my dark ages, like I said, I went to some Mormon services. I wanted to write a book on how silly they are. Still do. But in order for me to go ahead with my undercover Mormon infiltration, I had to get rid of all the things that are sinful in my life. Now, coffee is one thing. It's really easy to hide that you're not drinking coffee. But during that time in my life, I was also a uh, smoker, and that's a big no-no, and much harder to hide because, well, you smell like a smoker if you're a smoker. So I went over to uh, <laughs> one of the elders' house, or whatever you want to call them, and the two women missionaries were there, the ones that were trying to convert me, and uh, they said, it's time. And I said, for what? And they said, for you to stop smoking. I'm like, oh, okay then. The first thing they had me do was smush my box of cigarettes, which I did begrudgingly, but I did. And then there was like 10 people there, and they all put their hand on me, and uh, they they said a little prayer and commanded the demon of nicotine addiction to come out. And uh, then someone did bring out a little bit of oil and put a dollop of it on my head. Wow. And did it work? I did was, you never smoke again? No, I think I smoked on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever smoke again? All that was different is I had unco- I was uncomfortable because my social anxiety I had greasy hair now because they just put some vegetable oil in it and... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get through this depressing episode. I feel like this week's going to be a little light on the old humor side of things. It, yeah, oh, I, I, I don't think so. Yeah, it's going to be hilarious. The final episode begins with old footage of Mark Hoffman being led into jail. As a wide shot of the prison that he lives in is shown, we hear an interviewer ask Hoffman, when did you first start thinking about killing people? That's a good question. Hoffman responds, and the interviewer's like, I know, that's why I asked it. Because I'm a good interviewer. Then he goes, um, the bomb parts were purchased a week or two before uh, they were constructed. My idea was to have those materials to keep my options open. So probably the same day that I made the purchase was the first time that I considered taking life to get myself out of the jam that I found myself in. I felt that, at the time, drastic measures were called for. Someone had to die. 
This dude's creepy. <laughs> he's just a creepy, creepy dude. Because he delivers it just like I just read it. Yeah. Like, it, it's just it a, is. a matter of fact that he needed to kill somebody. It's a vis- as if he has no conscience. I'm just going to say right here at the beginning, Mark Hoffman is a textbook sociopath. Yeah. Yep. Textbook. Which, it's interesting to me, and I think I shared this with you the other day, I would love to know more about the psychological profile of this man, which they really don't go much into it, but how how did there be some things that just escaped other people's knowledge as he lived to be this old before he did anything so hideous? I don't know how there is to be that. Yes, how is there to be? <laughs> And there's a lot of people too. It wasn't like he just fooled like some dopes on the street. No, like he was forming uh, nuclear scientists. Uh, yeah, it's how could everything be completely missed? How could that be? How is that to be? They weren't taken is to... It to be, or is it not to be, Zach? That's the question. <laughs> then we are taken to January. 23rd, 1987, Dan Rather reports that Mark Hoffman pled guilty to two counts of forgery and murder. Another anchor reports of how Hoffman was trusted and liked by his community and how he fooled everyone. Then we go back to everyone's favorite Mormon document dealer, Shannon the Pooh Flynn, just looking sad. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just the face he makes. Maybe he just looks digest, or, or maybe he just looks dejected. <laughs> digested? When, maybe, he, maybe he just looks dejected whenever he's asked to, quote, dredge up this crap again. It very well could be. I don't know what it would be like. At least I don't think I know or will know what it's like to be fooled to that extent I don't know. I, I wanna, I'm just going to say this and, and lay it out there, and you guys can take it as you will. But I went from being really kind of looking down on the nerdiness of Shannon Flynn in the first episode to being mm-hmm. kind of terrified of him by the end of the first episode to feeling sorry for him by the second episode to now in the third episode... All I want right now in my life is just to get a hug from him in that suit he's wearing. I feel like a Shannon Flynn hug would just be one of those good hugs. You know what I mean? Hugs no, I feel hug. like Shannon's hiding something. I don't think he <clears throat> is. I feel like he, I don't he knows th- a lot. He, he knew more than he led on to, and now he has to act all remorseful. I think. Like, oh, I, I don't I think was he's duped. I don't think he's that good of an actor, especially at the end. I, I don't buy that. I think Flynn, uh, he, he's probably, besides uh, besides Brent Metcalf, he's probably the most genuine person in this. It, it is an interesting take on it, because when he got arrested, I mean, he acted just cocky and arrogant. And, hey, well, why don't you guys kill that bird? That, I could, but then <laughs> why would you kill a bird? <laughs> Hang on just a second. All right. My window's shut. I don't know. I just, I think... I think he's I think he's genuine, but I think there's a lot of genuineness to him too, but I have some of the same concern that Luke does that I wonder is there stuff that he knows that he's been able to suppress 
for all these years to keep himself out of trouble. I, I don't know. He's a fascinating man, though. He is. And when you watch all three documentaries, I mean, he was kind of. I didn't. I, again, I didn't like the first one. But he, he grew <laughs> <laughs> the, the entire documentary. <laughs> the, Shannon, Shannon Depew, he kind of grows on you. He does, like a wart. But a cute, I mean, I don't like know that cute, I want to hug from him. I but do. Since when do you want to hug from somebody? I don't want to hug from somebody. I want to hug from Shannon the Pooh Flynn. <sighs> I don't. He probably he's he's probably a serial killer too. No, he's not. Before we begin the modern day fecal dredging, we are taken to a news interview where Flynn who is young at the time and was the last to conclude that Hoffman was guilty, is being interviewed. This normally happy, pudgy man-baby with a felony weapons charge is mad. And we get a glimpse of that anger that terrified me of Flynn at the end of the first episode as he spits out his feelings over being lied to by his former friend, Back in the modern day, Flynn rasps out a few rhetorical questions. He says, it's easy to say, well, couldn't you see that? What's the matter with you? And Flynn is honest when he answers his own questions. He didn't expect Hoffman because he didn't want to. And I think that's yeah. true. I mean, how many people are in jail with their parents or their spouse or somebody adamant that they didn't commit the crime that they're in jail for. Mark was his, uh, his means to feel like he was important. Well, yeah, but all those people that fit Flynn's personality has that one person they're drawn to, to mm -hmm. make them feel validated. I think he presented himself as such a likable guy. Right. In court, we learn the outcome of the biggest forgery case ever. Hoffman enters four guilty pleas and was sentenced to five years to life, which seems awfully lenient. Awfully lenient. I mean, how in the world do you justify a man who, in cold blood, murders two people to get his first chance at parole after only five years? Yeah, those Mormons are gracious. But the uh, uh, the other caveat to this is that Hoffman agreed to explain in detail exactly why he did what he did and how he did it. Which was valuable information. And what's worse is after this plea is made, Mark Hoffman is walking out of the courtroom with just the most smug smirk plastered across his face that I have ever seen. He's he's pleased his punch mm -hmm. with himself. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. He's a, he's a sociopath. Because, he's you know, a sociopath. Because not only if, does he get this lenient five years to life sentence, but he also gets all this attention of having a reporter come or a uh, uh, an interviewer come and get and he gets to tell his life story about how great Mark Hoffman was at what Mark Hoffman did. Joseph Smith, Mark Hoffman, two people that give Mormons bad names. None <laughs> <laughs> of the rest of them. <laughs> I just like to imagine that Joseph Smith no. gave Mormons a bad name. Uh, <laughs> hey, why didn't Why didn't we try to reach out to Mark Hoffman to have him on the show? 
if you don't mind, I'm going to try to call the jail yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, I, I do mind. Do not tomorrow. call him. Do not call the prison. And, uh, I don't want anything to do with not, them. I don't want any. Hey. I don't even want the chance of having to associate with him any more than I've already had. Well, trust me, together. there's no chance. I don't care. He won't do talk to the biggest news agency. Yeah, he in won't the talk world. to Jared Hess, the director of Napoleon Dynamite. What chance do let we alone, have? Let alone us smucks. I mean, you know who could get it done, though. Luke. Michael George, the chief investigator on the Hoffman case, says that he and his team were happy with the outcome, but even more happy that they're going to get a glimpse into the mind of this forging murderer. And that's not a euphemism. That's just describing what he was. It took me a second thinking, forging murderer, how is that a euphemism? But understand, forging. I digress. Go ahead. I'm sorry. This is the part where Scott spells out the joke. Yeah. That's because he doesn't didn't get it. It's a reflection on my intelligence. Ah, there's so many reflections. Sorry. It's like a house of mirrors in here for you. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a smart man. <laughs> And next, we get to listen to the start of these recordings of Hoffman answering questions. And again, this really annoys me. Because on one hand, I get it. You know, you want to interview these sociopaths and, and psych psychopaths in order to catch other sociopaths and psychopaths. You need that information down. But on the other hand, this is what he wants. This is the man that last episode was called, or, or was said to be modeling his life after Jr. from Dallas, whatever that is. Mm. You young pup. Yeah, but, you know, this is, the news always has this issue. It's like great news. Yeah, to get great news and get people interested, you have to highlight the, the crazy person. But I'm still fascinated by it. And, and the first Which thing is why I, the news... I know. Why and the that's news why the news runs it. <laughs> I know, and that's why true crime stuff exists but the the first thing i want to note uh when the interviewer says that hoffman has been deceiving people and living a life of deception hoffman kind of like cuts her off and corrects her and says uh that his forgeries were harmless experimentation you're in jail for murdering two people i think that's the uh opposite of harmless experimentation yeah I think when, when what you do costs people their lives, it, it gets bumped up from harmless experimentation to living a life of deception and lies and murder. Well, he didn't even care that he had killed two people because didn't somebody confront him about that? And he was like, well, everybody has to die eventually. Uh, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll get there in a moment. <laughs> yeah, they're better off. But then the interviewer asks Hoffman, do you feel proud of yourself at this moment? And at this point in the documentary, I was literally leaning forward in my chair. I'm like, I want to hear what he says. But no, the human wedgie slash former Utah anchorman Rod Deckard has to jump in. If you remember, he was the one that sung the Utah National Anthem in the first episode. And instead of letting us hear whether or not Mark is proud of himself, Rod decides to tell us of a time that Mark and his friends, quote, went on a treasure hunt! He really stressed the treasure hunt of that that sentence. And, and, and in my mind at this point, I'm like, Rod, don't be a wedgie. 
Not right just now. Just shut up. Just, just shut up and let me listen to the interview. But Rod insists on really getting in between the audience's cheeks and continues. Apparently, Mark, <laughs> he's a wedgie. I, I know. Okay. okay. I'm just making sure that you got that. Apparently, uh, Mark and his friends, when he was a kid, were going on a treasure hunt. And Mark went out the night before and hid some coins so that when they went on a treasure hunt, he could find them. They should have locked them up right then and there. Really, they should have. Are you talking about the news anchor or Hoffman? <laughs> I, I would like the news anchor at this point. It's, I, that's I, what I, I'm at, saying. at this point, I'd like him to have five years to life just so I don't have to hear this dumb story. <laughs> but then we get back to the tapes, and Mark still isn't answering the question of whether he's proud or not. He never does. Thanks, Rod. Uh, but so Mark on tape confirms that he's always been a garbage person who got his kicks deceiving people. And at this point, I asked myself in my ma- mind, Mark, why don't you become a, um, a, a magician? I mean, if you want to be somebody that deceives people for a living, become a magician. Because nobody I'm, believes that a magician is... Nobody believes what they do is true. I don't, they know they're being fooled. I disagree. David Blaine has made millions deceiving people, and he's only killed my interest in street magic. But does he believe it's true? I don't know. I've Nobody s- believes it's true, though. Everyone knows he's a trickster. Did you ever see David Blaine at Will Smith's house? Will Smith believed that it was true. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, friends. Mark goes on and says that he liked fooling people because it made him feel superior to others. At least he admitted to it. There's plenty of people that want to feel superior, but they'd never admit to it. Well, of course he admits to it. He's a sociopath. Well, good job for honesty. He gets points. I will say he does something impressive at age 12. We're not told what he did. Uh, right, go ahead. Oh, I was just con- I was agreeing that it was pretty impressive. Uh, at age 12, he began making coins appear more valuable than they actually were. I don't know what he did. In my mind, I like to imagine that he was like painting pennies silver and drawing the number 10 on them in Sharpie and saying that they're a dime. But you probably had Windex in the dish rag. <laughs> just, I, that's just, I just, found, you just find him up. I just find that funny. Like he just, he just spray painted a penny and wrote 10 on it and shipped it off to the treasury. The treasury like, yeah, he did it. That's a dime. Well, I mean, here's the thing, whatever he was doing, he fooled the, he fooled the people that are in charge. We're of looking at it as well. Yeah. He, he fooled yeah. the people who said, or by the age of 14, rather, he manipulated a penny to make it appear rare, sent it off to the Treasury Department, and the Treasury Department authenticated it. 14. Yeah. i got to be honest, I lost some faith in, um, you know, whether or not these... I, I figured it'd be really hard to fool some of these people, like these document dealers. He's obviously the U.S. Treasury. Now I'm kind of wondering how hard it really is. Well, I think Mark Hoffman is... Uh, for lack of better terms, a brilliant forger. He's like the Michelangelo of forgeries. I, I, I still have faith in them because Mark is like a one in a billion as far as forgers are concerned. And How many people try this, though? Uh, listen, I've tried it all the time. 
All right, my twenty dollars. Never... My twenty dollars bills are hanging up behind gas station cash registers all over Ohio. <laughs> uh, I never liked his music, by the way. Huh? Michelangelo. <laughs> I never cared for his music. Yeah, it wasn't very good. Come on. <laughs> you know you wanna. I do, but I've already decided that I'm not going to give villains the attention they want. <laughs> and then Hoffman says something that is basically the mantra of every false religion that's ever been conceived. He says it's not so much what is genuine and what isn't as what people believe is genuine. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. If you want a full of place that whose job is to detect whether something is real or not if you know what they check and you're able to manipulate something in order to pass their tests then it can't be that difficult to forge and then we're shown home footage of mark and his wife dory hoffman celebrating their child's birthday dory then explains how she didn't know anything about her husband's deception, as she says. Sure, Dory. Yeah, I. You know what? You guys are getting on 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 Shannon's case. I, I think Dory's the biggest liar in this whole documentary. I truly do. Really? Yeah. I. I. Come on. Come on. <laughs> You're telling I didn't know you're, anything. you're telling me that he's sitting there in his office burning papers at all hours of the night, creating ozone and and things that have a distinct smell, and you didn't notice that something was going on. Hey, maybe that smell didn't leave the door. No, no, Dory is a liar. <laughs> hey, she didn't care though because Mormon... she was she was getting the big moolah from it. Yes, it sounds like something someone who does know. Uh, it sounds like something they say to make it seem like they don't know when they actually do know, you know? I found her to be remorseful for his actions. Did you? Because I found her to be crocodile tears streaming down her face. She she knew all about it. She probably she told Mark to know. kill him. And she is a she is a hardened woman, emotionally speaking, because she was married to this monster. No, she's a liar. Not only, not only did she have to go through and endure all that garbage, but she's had to lie about what she, she knew knows. about that for years. How oh, the she poor woman! She, she knew everything. Anything. She didn't she know knew anything. everything <laughs> and nothing. She delivered the and, bombs in Mark's jacket, and <laughs> <laughs> and she's got to go through life knowing that her children are half that monster she was married to. Welcome our guest on today's show, Jeremy Dahmer. Jeremy, how are you doing? I understand your dad is, of course, the famous Jeffrey Dahmer. How do you feel being half monster and paying for your father's sins? You're an idiot, Scott. Not at all. <laughs> so, are you saying? Not at all. Are you saying there's no genetics that pass down from father to son or father to daughter? Mother to son, mother you're to right, daughter. Scott, they do. But are you saying that if your dad is a hardened sociopath, that you're a hardened sociopath? No, I'm not. It's not what I'm saying at all. Sounds but like is there, is there, like, is, like literally is, what you were saying. <laughs> no, because I'm you not. said but is there that she a has chance? to grow up knowing that her children are half monster. 
I was ADHD. <laughs> My son is ADHD. Okay. If I was a monster, it would pass on to him. You're coming down too hard on this woman. You're coming down too hard on these kids. Well, no, I'm just, can you imagine? <laughs> I'm, attacking, you imagine? I'm attacking the woman because I don't buy her story. You're attacking the children because of their parentage. No, I'm not attacking the children, but wouldn't you have a little fear? No. For the ch- I mean, if your wife ended up being a mass murderer, Listen, would you have fear for Joseph ad- that he had those we genes? We just adopted the most beautiful little baby. Me and Kelsey did. His name, Yeah. He, he's from Germany. He's a German orphan named Jebediah Hitler. Jebediah Hitler. Yes. And I think that he's going to grow up to be just great. Good. You should probably just go ahead and put Mark's kids in jail then, I think. But it was, hey, it, all, I'm trying to, all I'm trying to say is genetics get passed down. I'm not saying the kids are going to be like dad, but genetics go from parents to children. See, I'm under the theory, and listen, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I play one on TV. I'm under mm-hmm. the theory that more childhood trauma and things that happen to you forge into mental disorders versus genetics. And this is all going to get cut out because I'm not going to allow you, Scott, to ruin your career <laughs> by by saying that children of sociopaths are going to be monsters. That's not what I said. I'm sorry. Can we re-roll the clip here? Oh. <laughs> Children of sociopaths are going to be monsters. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you on the on the uh, on the environmental part, wholeheartedly. I think, but I don't. I, dis- it's I don't dismiss warming. genetic issues. Serious question: uh, Do do you think she knew some or a lot? I think she knew. What I, I think she her? knew everything. I, I don't think that she knew absolutely everything. But to say that this was happening in her own home and she was just completely ignorant about it. I'm not buying it. I'm not. I, I, I think that she's the biggest liar in this documentary. Honestly, I do. I wonder what kind of uh, questioning they did of her to bring her in. I mean, to me, that would be as important as the interviews they're doing with him right now. I think it started, post, you know, crime. there was that one question towards the end of the documentary where she was like, I haven't talked to Mark ever since I served him the divorce papers. I think yeah. that was the first question they asked him. And they were like, Man, this was our end of Mark Hoffman. I guess we can just interview her. I think that she was she was Could she be. was the bridesmaid to Mark Hoffman's bride. It, it would be interesting to see everything that she knew, if she knew she's, what she's, she knew. She's not going to admit it because here's the reason why I think that she's a liar. She starts out by saying I don't know, and then she goes through and says a whole bunch of stuff that she knew. <laughs> what was the question she was asking? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. The Hoffman recordings continue to play as an actor recreates Mark dipping some paper in some hydrogen peroxide. They keep doing this. They keep like doing little clips of him doing the forgings. And I wonder how accurate they're being. Like like Breaking Bad. You know, that's a for 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 my my dear Luke, I'll explain to him. It's a very popular television show about a chemistry teacher who gets cancer and starts making meth in order to pay his bills. It's a wonderful character study on situational ethics, and I'm being serious uh, about that, but don't watch it because there's some wordy dirts in there. But um, but in order to play the character Walt, Brian Cranston actually went to uh, 
DEA agents and learned to cook meth so he could do it right. Like the acting and the, the methods and the chemistry and stuff. But because obviously they don't want to put out a, 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 you know, recipe for meth on television, they changed certain things so that even if you followed the steps that they show, you're not going to be able to create the drug. I wonder if they did the same thing here, or if I get some like computer paper and hydrogen peroxide, I can sell them for $40,000 because I'm tempted. <laughs> I don't know. You know, hmm. yeah, we should try it. We should. What should we forge? So the Hoffman recording continues to play as an actor recreates Mark dipping some paper in some hydrogen peroxide. The interviewer asks Hoffman if he expects his wife to stay with him. And Hoffman's like, yeah, of course. I'm a catch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a tan. A tan. And then he goes on to explain that the Anthon transcript, the holograph from episode one that supposedly was made by Joseph Smith uh, that that had, you know, uh, symbols from the original golden plates that Dory found in the old Bible was forged. And more than that, he glued it into the Bible himself, and then he placed the Bible on the table so Dory could find it and wouldn't know that her husband was a garbage person. When asked if he felt bad about using his wife, Hoffman said he didn't feel like he was using her. You know, that's probably the best way to deal with guilt. Just convince yourself you're not guilty. Yeah. Yeah, he's just like, he's like, oh, I wasn't using her. And guys, listen, denial is not just a river that runs through the land whose language the golden plates were supposedly written in. (laughs) Here, here. What? Denial's not a river in Egypt. Gold plates were supposed to be written in Egyptian. Uh, and, and further, he goes on to say that he felt happy because his wife was useful to him. And so here's, here's one of the reasons why I don't buy that Dory was so innocent and unknowledgeable. Because after Dory was all excited about finding the Anthon transcript, Hoffman actually admits to her that he forged it. And then when she gets angry with Hoffman, he's like, ah, I got you. I was just playing. Baby, you know I ain't no forger. <sighs> I I could believe her story there, even though I think she's a liar. I could I could believe no, that. No, I'm sorry. Who who lies like that? Who who comes up? That's lie is so outlandish that I would immediately know it's a lie. Mm. And then I don't know, Zach. You you might have been fooled like Pooh Bear. Maybe. Then we learn about the locked room that Dory wasn't allowed in. I, I promise you there has never been a wife in the history of marriage. <laughs> who is, I'm not allowed in that room. Challenge accepted. Listen, I asked my wife not to get in my toolbox. No. That's the first place she's going. She, she I find my tools all over the place because she needed them. What did you need a pair of channel locks for? I was fixed. Doesn't matter. I was fixing the dresser. What were you using channel locks for? <laughs> no, I don't I don't buy it. And Dory's like, I was just happy because it was a room I didn't have to clean. You were in there. You were in there every time Mark was in New York. Don't lie, Dory. You knew everything. Maybe those Mormon women are a lot more submissive. I and- don't. Mm-hmm. See, that's what I'm wondering. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. 
And then we get more information about Mark's scam. He would actually go to collectors and ask them if they are looking for something. And then he would ma- just miraculously come up with whatever document they were looking for. I, I do not understand. Yeah, how, how could you not ask some questions after that happened? I know. I don't understand. Oh, you remember two months ago when you said you were looking for this? You'll never believe what I found. Uh, well, I mean, I guess he could make the case that he like specifically went after that that document. Yeah, you know, that once he same knew that document was that fifty other people have been searching for years to find. But he's able to. How just many to people are searching it. for Mormon documents every single Saturday? <laughs> I'm sad he's in jail because I don't know that he couldn't go find the Holy Grail. Seriously, I mean, he should have. That's probably his his end game. That's like me going up to somebody and be like, look, I'm looking for a complete manuscript of Ecclesiastes signed by Solomon himself. Well, it's your lucky day. I was tending my garden out, pop this out of one of my tomatoes. <laughs> uh, you don't say. I mean, it's just... It's just... See, that's what I'm saying. I wonder how many people look back on the relationship with him and go, I am an idiot. The signs were as clear as everyone. day, but his charming personality sucked me in and, well and that's what that's what our favorite hobbit lawyer says he basically comes out and says greeds makes idiots out of most people yeah you know hoffman's greedy because he wants the money out of these fake documents the other people are greedy because they want to get their hands on these fake documents they're willing to believe anything and if it's not greed the wife and then if it's not greed then it's pride like brent metcalf explains he says he didn't expect or suspect mark hoffman basically because it boils down to the fact that he didn't want to believe that Hoffman could get away with these things without him noticing. We then hear the interviewer ask Hoffman if he has a set of values that serves as his anchor in determining his behavior. And Hoffman says that he does, but he doesn't know whether his actions spring from those beliefs or if he created his set of beliefs to justify his actions. Fair answer. I'm per- That's a very fair answer. I'm- and the reason why the interviewer asked these questions, the interviewer says, is because Hoffman seems to get some sense of, of pleasure out of messing with the beliefs of others. And Hoffman agrees. He says he enjoys experimenting with other people's beliefs. In other words, he is a garbage person. Can you not relate to this? I No, I can't, because I'll tell you why in just a second. Wow. Sorry. Because as our wedgie reporter Rob Decker explains, he, he goes on to explain how Hoffman would toy with people's faiths. Basically, he would come up with some plausible scenario in his forged documents that would cause Mormons to question their faith. And I do want to be clear about this. I do not believe the Mormon faith whatsoever. However, although I want to see everyone come to the Lord's church, I do not have a right to make up evidence and lie in order to bring people to God. That's, that is my problem with this. This is why I don't relate to this, because if anything, I bring truth and logic to the argument. I don't say, well, Joseph Smith said you should come to my my church service tomorrow. Here's an old piece of paper. Besides the murders, him creating lies and documents is one of the reasons why I think Mark Hoffman is one of the most despicable people I've ever heard about. Mm -hmm. Because 
it is one thing to bring truth and evidence to try to convince someone to join the Lord's Church. It's another thing to create bold-faced lies and false documents in order just to screw with people. Not even uh, uh, trying to bring them to the truth. He's just screwing with them for the sake of screwing with them. I just think he's a bad person. He's a horrible person. He's an all right person. I don't think for a minute that Hoffman was just taking advantage of the Mormon church because they were an easy target, that he knew that they would buy these documents. As a matter of fact, we're told that since the age of 14, Mark Hoffman, who was raised as or in an incredibly strict Mormon household, claimed that he was an atheist. This man got pleasure of taking down the Mormon church through his forgeries. And that's the point that this documentary brings up a very reasonable question. The Mormon uh, historian slash critic, the woman whose job I want more than any other job in the world, asks uh, that or, or says that this caused a lot of people in the church to ask questions because the higher-ups, the hierarchy of the Mormon church supposedly have access to communicate directly to God to the point where God communicates directly back to them. How is it that these people are speaking to God, and yet not one time God said, hey, don't buy those from Mark Hoffman, they're forgeries? Good question. Of course. Don't you think all the, like, all this was, like, his, this is what he enjoyed so much, though. He's, like, having that much power over people. Of course. No, you know, no matter how you get it, even if it's through forging documents, he's like, he can like sit back if he got away with it, he could sit back for the rest of his life. And he's like, you know, all these people believe something because I created this truth for them. I think what you're saying, Zach, is if these leaders of, of Mormonism have that drink linked to God, how did it ever get to the point where forgeries came into the church? Because with that direct link, God should have informed you from the beginning. Well, hold on a second, a because lie. Richard E. Turley, the good Mormon man of... The church gives us, quote, the theological response to this question. He said the the or theological response to that is that God gives people the agency to choose between right and wrong. And as an omniscient being himself who knows all this, he doesn't step in and interfere uh uh or in a fear or excuse me, interfere with the universal detection of crimes or sins warnings because that would revoke the agency God has given to each of his children to make his own decisions. No, it wouldn't. Not at all. You Because that, you still have all. a choice there. Hey, Luke, will you buy this fake piece of paper? It's fake. You could still buy it. You have the free will to still buy it. But God, who wants to protect his church, you're telling me that he wouldn't say, if it was legitimate, wouldn't say, hey, don't do that because it's going to destroy the doctrine that my son gave when he came to America? (laughs) (sighs) There's more than one flaw. So one of the biggest fallouts of Mark Hoffman's forgeries is the fact that all these Mormons are now questioning their faith. Mark Hoffman is such an egomaniacal person 
that instead of using the logic and truth that is out there to back up the fact that Mormonism and the history of Mormonism is based on a fairy tale, the fact that Joseph Smith never actually found gold plates in the woods, it's a complete fabrication, there's evidence out there, but instead of real evidence and logic to disprove the Mormon church, he takes it upon himself to say that he is the one who should decide what Mormon history is, whether it is true or false. That's what I have a problem with. Because at the end of the day, whether it's true history, Mormon history, American history, it's still history, and you shouldn't mess with that. Hmm. You're thinking too small. You can't dominate the world if you don't control history. I don't want to dominate the world. I want the truth. Oh. Amen. I want the legitimate false story that Joseph Smith came up with. I don't want Mark Hoffman's bastardized version of the story that Joseph Smith came up with. No, I agree. His, history is what it is, and you can't change it. You can change what you do in the future because of history. You can work from history, the mistakes, the positive things that have been there. But if history is not based on the truth, what do you got? You got nothing. And that's why I have such a big problem with this. And no, I do not relate with what he was doing at all. I can't believe that. That's that's fine. <laughs> My tone of voice was super silly and sarcastic, so I could understand why you wouldn't believe that. I mean, if you want to, uh, I think this is obviously this is fine. <laughs> You're just such a... <laughs> and it's at this point that the documentary shows us some of the things that Mark Hoffman did. And as much as I hate to say it or give him credit at all. He was a brilliant forger. Mm -hmm. Take, for example, the forged white salamander document. He not only swindled $40,000 out of Steve Christensen, who he then killed, Mark Hoffman wrote the white salamander letter in Martin Harris's handwriting, one of the higher-ups in the early Mormon church. He did that and got that authenticated, so if he was allowed to continue forging, he would have created the 116 lost pages of the Book of Mormon manuscript in Harris's handwriting, and then they could authenticate the manuscript to the salamander letter, and the forgery would authenticate the forgery. That is genius. Excellent. I mean, that is genius. It's evil. Did he ever admit that that was his, his master plan? I think he probably did on the tapes, but we're not given that tape. We have somebody telling us that. But it was actually Brent Metcalf that said it, and he has no reason to lie. So I, I believe he did hear that. But still, that's... To me, the challenging thing is that... that I, I can't I can't write I can't duplicate that Zach I can't I can't do your signature Luke's or that's I, I'm not gifted at that at all he obviously was but the thing that to me is even more impressive than that is how did he get the paper to date that time how did he well, they expl- smudge how did he t- yeah I know but just the ability to do that I mean it doesn't seem that hard. is incredible to me it would have been hard to come up with but now that I know it doesn't seem that hard. 
Because at this point, the interviewer asks Hoffman about some of his methods he used to forge these documents. And at first, Hoffman acts all, like, coy and shy. He's like, oh, I'm not a genius forger. People just saying that. <laughs> because <laughs> they, they're building me up because the experts don't want to look bad. But then they go into detail about how he does this and, no, he's a genius forger. He's a genius forger, yeah. The first thing that made Hoffman so successful as a forger was that he had the ability to look at someone's handwriting and then just sit down and copy it perfectly. That, that's, that's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And then... And one of the one of the things they look at at forgeries, too, is they can, they can com- uh, obviously compare to that handwriting, but they take a look at specific letters well, to see if they I, match perfectly. You see it on Pawn Stars and, all the time. Somebody brings in a baseball, yeah, yeah. ball signed by Babe Ruth, and they have somebody come in with a authenticated autograph. They're like, yeah, the B's different. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's, a, he's able to write this stuff out in such a way that it can be undetectable. And then he does things to make the iron-based inks that they used in the 1800s look genuine. <laughs> He First of all, he makes his own ink mixed out of some stuff that he found at a hobby shop. Something happens naturally over time is that the ink would bleed through the paper and create a shadow on the back. And it's a phenomenon called foxing. And Hoffman replicates this by simply putting his forged documents over a screen and running a vacuum cleaner hose over the back of it to suck the ink through the paper. And then he just gets a aquarium, a five-gallon aquarium with a glass lid, a jar of salt water, and exposed wire that he plugs into an outlet, and he creates a tank of ozone, which, as you know, is our atmosphere. And so he's able to replicate a high ozone environment that ages paper, making it look to be over 100 years old. This was before the internet, too. Bravo to him. Seriously. Yeah, Yeah, early 80s. Now, which now for a serious question, if we can duplicate the ozone because and we have a hole in the ozone, why don't we just take a big fish tank and plug it in? Perfect. To save the earth from global warming, you mean? Yep. Now, if we remember... Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, that's the solution. Look at what we're fixing here on Rotten Air Righteous. Now, if we remember back to last week, the thing that got Hoffman caught was the fact that his ink under a microscope was cracked. Why does ink crack? Well, old documents have iron-based ink. What happens to iron as it gets older? It oxidizes or it rusts the same way uh, uh, that your fence does or any other piece of metal that you have does. It's a reason why if you look at old documents like the Declaration of Independence, it looks like it was written in red or a, a maroon color. Originally, it was written in black, but iron oxidizes. That's what's happened. So, in order to make a document seem like it's very old, you have to make your ink rust. You have to have that oxidation. There's two ways to do this. You can apply heat to it in order to make it rust faster, or there's some chemical you can spray on it to make it rust. But the problem with the chemical is it makes the ink crack, something that doesn't happen in natural oxidation. And that was Hoffman's big mistake. That's how he got caught. Because genuine Mm -hmm. historical documents do not have that microscopic cracking. We're then taken to July 1985, four months before the bombing. Mark at this time is creating the appearance that he is doing very well. 
that he's being uh, uh, or that he's having a lot of success in his document dealings. But the truth is, he was struggling financially to keep up with his fast-paced and lavish lifestyle. That's what inspired him to forge the Oath of the Free Man's pamphlet. You remember from last episode, that was the document that was uh, being planned on, uh, or that was the document he was going to sell for $1.5 million, the document that was going to be displayed at the base of the Statue of Liberty. So he was relying on that sale to cover all of his debts. But before that sale went through, remember, Mark was supposedly supposed to be, or was supposedly going to buy the McClellan Collection this large collection of Mormon documents. He and Steve Christensen were going to work together to procure this collection. And in order to buy this, he took out a large loan from the coin collector slash Muppet Al Rust (laughs) with the promise that he would pay him back as soon as the McClellan collection was sold. Now, he really took out that loan to cover other expenses and other debts. And by September, it was clear that Hoffman wasn't going to be able to clear these debts. It was clear that he was in severe financial trouble. He wrote uh, Rust a check. Hoffman wrote Rust a check for the money he borrowed, and it bounced. And in the end, Al Russell tells us that he never got a cent from Mark Hoffman. And he, uh, he ended up having to sell his entire collection, his livelihood, in order to pay the bank back. This is the kind of damage that Mark Hoffman left in his wake. So, Al Rust, and by September, Al Rust and Steve Christensen are putting a huge amount of pressure on Mark to get the McClellan collection and sell it to the church and make that $400,000 the church was going to buy it for so everyone could get their money back. Of course, this put a huge amount of stress on Hoffman because of the just massive amount of forging he would have to do in order to create this entire collection. When Hoffman realized that the Oath of the Freeman document wasn't going to be sold in time, the walls of his schemes were closing in on him. He owed people money that he couldn't pay back. And the first thing he does that's suspicious is he makes a kind of diorama or a a scene of old-looking documents in the trunk of his car. So if anyone says, hey, are you getting the McClellan collection? He'd be like, yeah, it's right here in my trunk. It wasn't. Those were just forgeries made to look like it was. That's what they found in his car. Then, on October 14th, 1985, the night before the bombings, Brent Metcalf is invited over to Mark Hoffman's home, and Mark was happily playing with his kids, and everything seemed like it was going good. Brent Metcalf says, knowing that the next day he was going to murder people, puts him in the most sinister light possible. What makes this even more horrible is the fact that Mark Hoffman was building these pipe bombs the night before he actually did that, without actually knowing who his target was. He knew he was going to kill someone, but he hadn't decided who he was going to kill until the bombs were completed. Sinister is right. And so you have to ask yourself, what kind of monster can do this? Well, listen to Mark Hoffman's own words. He basically says it's no great deal who dies. After all, they might have died in a car accident. You know, the worthlessness of life or whatever. This man has no value for human life. Besides his own. Nope. So, Mark Hoffman kills Steve Christensen to get him off his back about the McClellan collection. 
He knew he was very close to being caught, so he murdered this man to protect his own lies. And then we hear a recording of Mark Hoffman in his own words explaining his motive. It was all for protection of my family, or whatever, from that knowledge of being identified with certainty as the forger I was. It wasn't for his family, it was for his own legacy. Yeah, what did his family have to do with it? He didn't care that his kids found out. He didn't care about his kids. It's hard to explain, he continues, because, well, I don't even fully understand it. Yeah, I had a lot of thoughts in my mind, obviously. I knew what my teachings were. As far as my religious teachings, I knew. Even though I tried to justify the taking of life as my own survival, and that was philosophically not an not an inappropriate thing to do, I had feelings of not guilt so much as feelings of wondering as far as, you know, what happens if I'm wrong or what happens if there really is a God. Again, that's pure abject selfishness. He's not worrying or feeling guilty about the people that he's murdering. He's just worried about himself, what happens when he dies. You know, but I feel like we make this sound like it's like it's a terrible because thing. Because it obviously is. Obviously it is. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is the end result of like where our society wants us to go. You know what I mean? Like a naturalistic evolutionary standpoint. He's right. Philosophically, from that standpoint, that worldview, blow up whoever you have to blow up if you're going to survive because it's, it's survival of the fittest. And at the end of the day, life's not really that important as long as the evolutionary chain continues. And that's not even really a, a priority. So it's like we... It's interesting to me that we create these Netflix documentaries about people who actually live out the implications of what they say they believe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because everyone would act this way if they actually believed the the if they actually lived out the worldview that they claim to believe. Yeah, because it is survival of the fittest in its purest form. You do what you do to survive. Of course, that doesn't look or it doesn't actually work out or fit uh, morally in people's minds when they actually see it played out on a stage, which is exactly what we have here. So in a nutshell, he murders people to protect his reputation. Then our favorite hobbit slash lawyer explains that Steve Christensen's bomb was wrapped in nails. And the reason why you would wrap a pipe bomb in nails is because it ensures that you're going to get a kill. You don't wrap a pipe bomb in nails to scare someone or to threaten someone. You do it for murder. In other words, you can't even justify Mark Hoffman's actions as saying, well, he was just trying to scare people and he didn't mean to kill anyone. No, he he intentionally made sure that Steve Christensen's bomb was going to kill him. Now the second he bomb meant to kill. Now the second bomb, the one that killed Kathy Sheets was only a diversion. It was only something to throw the scent off of him. And what is absolutely disgusting about this is that in order for this plan to work, that second bomb didn't need to go off. 
It just had to look like a bomb that was similar to the one that killed Steve. He was smart enough to create a bomb that would not explode and kill a second person, but he didn't do that. No, this human pile of garbage made a working bomb when he didn't need to. These are his own words. I figured there was a 50% chance that it would go off. 50% chance that it wouldn't. If it didn't go off, it wouldn't frustrate my purpose. It was always an option not to create a bomb that could detonate, but as strange as it sounds, it was almost a game. Garbage is right. Because it's not a game. No, he was just like, oh, it's a 50-50 chance coin flip that the second person doesn't die. So in order for this diversion to work, it didn't need to explode, but he rigged it to explode, or at least have a 50% chance of exploding, because he wanted to play a game with people's lives. Further, listen to his words about placing an active bomb in a busy housing community. My thoughts were, it didn't matter if it was Mr. Sheets, a child, a dog, you know, whoever. That right there is what makes me... I, I, I am trying so hard to separate the sin from the sinner here, but I'm putting myself in, in the shoes of someone that lives in that community. Joseph goes around and picks up the most random stuff. And you're telling me that if he was around this housing community at that time, and he went to go pick up that box, he would have been a, he would have died in an explosion. He would have been torn apart by a pipe bomb because you were playing a game. This There's nothing funny about this. This is just absolutely disgusting what this man did. So a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. <laughs> I just had to do something to break the tension there. Then we're taken to October 16th, 1985, the day after the first bombings. So Hoffman's asked about the bomb that blew up his car. It's supposed... People assume that it was suicide, that he was killing himself. But then he asked the is asked the most important question, if you were planning on killing yourself, why murder two other people the day before? And his response, I didn't decide to commit suicide until after Mr. Christensen and Mrs. Sheets were killed. He was then asked if he killed himself out of feelings of guilt over the murders. His response, it wasn't so much feelings of guilt as feelings of protection. I do not buy it. At all. At this point, he's thinking that he can get away with this. He's playing games with people's lives. He's putting out fake bombs as a diversion. This man loved himself too much to kill himself at this point in his life. And then the interview asked, or the interviewer asked a really interesting question. She asked Hoffman what he was really going to do with that bomb. In other words, she assumes that the third bombing blew up his car by mistake. And it was planned for another one of Hoffman's associates. That's what I believe was is the truth. That it was a didn't, mistake to blow up. I do not think he tried to kill himself. Didn't it? Um, didn't it blow up underneath his car? No, it didn't. That was just what the news assumed. Just like they assumed the McLellan collection was in the back, and it wasn't just a bunch of staged documents. Hmm. We asked how could he survive with so few injuries. He blew up his legs and his hands a little bit. But if it was underneath his car and his whole car exploded, then yeah, that wouldn't make sense. But if he was handling it 
and it just exploded because he touched the wrong wire or something. And he got hit with shrapnel and stuff. But he survived. That makes more sense. And then we're reminded of the news footage that we saw on episode two of the Mormon man who poured consecrated oil on top of Mike Hoffman's head and commanded him to live. And what happens next is why I do not think Shannon Pooh Bear Flynn has a is hiding anything because he got so emotional and genuinely emotional about this. Like he was truly hurt by this because I, I believe he's a, a good practicing Mormon and he thought that this guy was doing think, what was best. But I think he was hurt that he didn't die. Yeah, I think so too. I think Flynn at this point is feeling kind of like I was feeling and am still feeling and struggling with that. I wish that third bomb finished the job. But Flynn says about this man on the news, the poor man didn't know. He didn't know he was giving a blessing to Satan. But it wasn't his fault. He was doing what he thought was the right thing. He had no idea it was Satan lying there. We then ask the inter- or we then hear the interviewer asking Hoffman if he feels remorse. When he says he does, she then asks for yourself or your victims. Hoffman answers Part of my philosophy of life is that the victims are not suffering at this point. Mr. Hoffman, I'm not concerned about the victims. He's right. Their lives are over. What I'm concerned about is how do you take someone out of this life who has a wife and a child and a family that loves them and their only crime is being associated with you? Again, I will say it. Mark Hoffman is a garbage person. Because not only did Hoffman destroy the lives of the victims' families, he also destroyed the lives of his so-called friends and associates, like Brent Metcalf, who was racked with guilt every single day because he was the one who introduced Steve Christensen to Mark Hoffman. He didn't know that Mark was a sociopath. He thought he was just introducing one document dealer to another document dealer. About his life since that day, this is what Brent has to say. It's like that wonderful life movie, except there's no redemption at the end. All it is is a continuation of the pain, and there is no way you can change it. It's done. I just wish I could undo everything. That's guilt. That's guilt. And it's it, Mark should be feeling that, not mm-hmm. Brent. Oh, yeah. Mark should be feeling that. He never but will. But this is the ripple effects that your selfish actions can have on other people. When Hoffman is asked about how he feels about his own family following the bombings, how he has a wife who will be alone, how he has four children who will not have a father, Mark Hoffman responds in a deadpan voice without a hint of emotion. It's obviously harder on them than it is on me. I guess I figure that I deserve what I get. If I did something that took me away from my son and I couldn't see him anymore, it would kill me. you have any thoughts on this, Luke? I know it's really hard to make sarcastic comments or stick up for Mark at this point in time, but <laughs> you want to give it a go, challenge? I guess try. I, <laughs> I guess I, uh, like, if you're just that selfish, like, I get it. <laughs> I mean, not that I relate. <laughs> Every, uh, the whole time I was watching this, I was kind of thinking what I was, what I had mentioned earlier. is like, this guy's just living living his best life under a naturalistic atheistic worldview. Yeah. Like there is nothing in the world, not 
nothing in the world wrong with this under that view. And that clearly he doesn't believe his, you know, what his Mormon's roots, Mormon roots taught him. And he clearly doesn't believe really uh, in much of any God, but he still has that, you know, he has that in the back of his mind. Like, what if I'm wrong that there is no God, but while he still believes it, he's just living it out. And, um, well, and, and, you know, we, I, I guess the, I, I guess the irony of it, that anybody could turn off, turn out like this and that we are justifying people like this when we push a secular society as a better society mm-hmm. than the one that we have now. You, there's no, there's no reason you can't condemn a man like this if you're going to push a, a secular worldview. Well, we, I mean, we preach from the, you can't, we preach from the pulpit all the time that life loses meaning without God. I mean, we, I, I preach all the time. The meaning of life is what Solomon discovered at the end of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. When you take God out and you live life as if there is no consequences, eternal consequences, you're right. This is what naturally happens. You stop caring about people. You only care about yourself and you start murdering people because, well, they're dead. They no longer feel anything. Uh, the last thing we hear from the, the call or the, the Hoffman interview is Mark being asked if he should ever be free again. Mark says, that's a good question. I think that someday I should be free. Uh, There's a sort of montage of people affected by Mark Hoffman's actions. We see Dory Hoffman, Mark's ex-wife, just shedding the world's biggest crocodile tears as she says she wants to go back in time and (laughs) stop Mark if she could. She knew about it. There's no (laughs) way she didn't. I love Al Rust, though. This is why I'm saying there's still some good that can come out of this documentary, because Al Rust explains that for a while all he could do was think about Mark Hoffman and what he did. Then he says, quote, Then it came to me all at once. I said to myself, He destroyed you financially, but don't let him destroy you spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Don't let him do it. And I called his dad, I said, I want you to know that I am not going to hate your son. I'm not going to understand because I don't. But will you just tell him that I forgive him and I'm going on with my life? A crying and angry Shannon the Pooh Bear Flynn just becomes my spirit animal and says what I've been thinking. It's awful what he did. That's why I say the rest of his life he needs to stay in prison. He will never atone for those sins. Never. Did they go on to say that he will definitely spend life in prison? Well, yeah. The on-screen text tells us that the parole board decides that he will serve his entire life in prison. That, yes, he's going to be paroled in five years, but he's not getting out. They've decided, probably after listening to these tapes, that this person needs to be locked away forever. Locked up. So what does Mark do when the parole board says he will never be paroled? He approaches other inmates to plan the assassination of the head of the parole board. It's like Mark Hoffman is given all these opportunities in his life, and at every opportunity, he just chooses the worst option. Yeah. Not only that, Mark wants to execute the parole board's head and every single member on that parole board and starts planning a way to hire hitmen to do this. 
and he wants to order a hit on the forensic document examiner who caught him, the horribly named George Throckmorton. (laughs) I still think that's... Because obviously he was the one at fault. Yeah. These are not the actions of a remorseful or repentant person. Five years he's rotted in jail, and the first thing he does when his parole's denied is just decide to murder everyone? These are the actions of someone who's mad that he got caught. The only silver lining, and I hate to put it like that, is that once he exhausted all of his plans and got foiled for his hitman conspiracies, Mark Mark Hoffman stashes a whole bunch of sleeping pills that he got from other inmates. And he took them all at once in a suicide attempt. But he didn't die. When he passed out, his right arm was pinned underneath him. And he laid there so long that his arm atrophied and he permanently lost the use of his forging arm. Poetic justice. I don't... Part of me sees this as... And I I don't mean to... Part of me sees this as providence. I, 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 I couldn't argue with that. I mean, it could it could be. We'll never know, but it could be. I mean, it's just so... And you take a look at a man that has had control over everybody and everything his entire life, including the deaths of others, now finds himself with no control, including the loss of that right the arm. The only thing that made him special was taken away from him. He didn't lose his yeah. life. He still has to stay in prison. But the only thing that made him special is now this dead and useless limb that's hanging off the side of him. Yep. And I don't know what that says about me, but I got a warm and fuzzy feeling. He'll just learn to write with his other one. If he can copy other people's handwriting, he can write left-handed. The question is, will it humble him? No. My guess is He'll just use it to smack people. <laughs> he can now pick that thing up and use it like a fly swatter. <laughs> we then hear the directors of the documentary ask Shannon Flynn to explain how Hoffman was very good at what he does or what he did. And this takes us back to the very beginning of episode one. If you remember episode one began with Shannon the Pooh Bear Flynn saying, can I ask a favor? Don't make me answer that. Don't make me answer that. Let somebody else do it. I don't want to make a hero out of them, or out of him. Because he was fantastic. No one has come close to doing what he has done. The depth of knowledge and understanding and his autodidactic ability is unprecedented. His ability to deceive unparalleled. I should have suspected we all should have suspected. We didn't. People don't want to know. He, he still thinks he's great. I think he's great. I think that his forging is talent. He did amazing things. Forging documents that the Treasury Department couldn't detect, that the FBI couldn't detect, that private authenticators using nuclear tactics couldn't detect. He US Treasury couldn't detect. He was a fantastic forger. You can't say anything 
yes, it was a lie, but you can't help but be impressed by his ability. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when you look at it just from a forging standpoint, yeah, Hoffman was amazing. But as a human being standpoint, he was a piece of garbage. We're then told through on-screen text that Hoffman did not respond to requests to be interviewed. And we're then shown photographs of Mark since he'd been in prison as the documentary comes to an end to the song Old Time Man by Mick Harvey. Um, Hoffman is not aging well. His glasses prescription is so bad that if he looks you straight in the face, it looks like his head is an hourglass. Because there's these two just giant divots because of how magnified his eyeballs are. He's it's just he just looks like a creepy dude. <laughs> in one in one picture, he's got a shirt on with an arrow pointing to his right arm that just says "I'm with stupid," which I thought was pretty pretty good. <laughs> oh gosh! Just... All right, so. Sorry for being a little bit extra serious this week, but there's not a lot of humor in this particular episode. But it was no it was an entertaining piece of media. Uh, here at the Rotten Righteous Podcast, we rate everything according to the SEPS scale, which is an acronym, but SEPS is also a Greek word that means stinky snake. Basically, it's four categories. Spiritual accuracy, uh, entertainment value, parental control, and should you watch it. Because this is not a doctrinal piece of media, we're not rating it according to the scriptural accuracy part of it. But we will do uh, the EPS of our SEP scale. Everything is rated on a scale of 1 to 25. We add those together and uh, average them out in order to give it a letter grade. So, entertainment value, just on episode 3. Scott. Hey, shut 20. up. Luke, go ahead and go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <laughs> No, I'm just kidding, Scott. Go ahead, Scott. What would you rate? No, shut shut up. Zach, you go ahead and go. <laughs> no, I gave it I gave it a 20. I enjoyed it this week. Um it uh it, it was good. I wish they would have gotten more into the psychological issues and maybe they just simply can't because of the nature of of HIPAA and such, but it was fascinating to listen to him talk and I really enjoyed it. It, it, it angered me. It saddened me. Uh, it's horrible to think about somebody that's done these kind of things. Uh, but I gave it a 20. Luke, how would you, uh, or Luke, how would you rate this on the entertainment scale? I gave it an 18. I liked it. I, I mean, as far as, uh, just keeping your attention, it was good. I'm not really a, true crime junkie but this was a story i'd never heard about and so that was also interesting to me so 18 yeah i'll give it a 20 it wasn't as good as the second episode i thought the second episode was the best of the series but uh yeah, i agree with that i watched it three times and uh, it, it kept my attention i really liked I, I like that they used the recordings because it's not hearsay it's not somebody saying well this is who mark mm -hmm. hoffman is it's mark hoffman and his nasty little sociopathic high-pitched voice 
telling us how horrible he is. And that's entertaining. Good job, America. <laughs> All right, parental control. Is there anything in here that you wouldn't want to watch with your grandma in the room? Is is there? I couldn't think of anything. I was trying to think in this episode if they had any of the scenes from the accidents. I know there was his car, talk of suicide. I didn't see anything huge in there. Uh, I gave it a 20 also. No, I there wasn't anything. I mean, if you, I wouldn't necessarily want to... Uh, Watch this with a kid and have them grow up to be a sociopath, but uh, that's how it works. That's generally how that happens. They're like, "Oh, this guy's awesome! I'll become like him." I give it a fifteen. Yeah, I'm gonna give it an eighteen. There's nothing too bad, but man, it is it is disturbing listening to someone who truly yeah. does not care about human life. It was hard to listen to. All right, which leads us to should you watch? Is there any merit in this program, Scott? Um, I gave it a twenty this week. Uh, twenty this week. Um, twenty. Okay, twenty. Okay, Luke. I gave it a ten, and mostly for those reasons that I had mentioned before. Uh, just the inconsistencies and in trying to villainize this guy, and then supporting the worldview that justifies them. So 10, I'm going to give it a 20 for all the reasons that Luke listed because they do villainize this guy, (laughs) but it does give us a picture of life living with that naturalistic earthly worldview that there is no God and that self-preservation is paramount. This is what happens when somebody lives their life as if eternity wasn't there. And because of that, there's a lesson there. It's a lesson that's hard to learn, and it's difficult to watch at times, but there's a lesson. And I I gave it a high score, too, just... Also, I gave it a high score just because of what our Muppet correspondent, Al Rust, said about forgiveness. That's a beautiful sentiment that there isn't enough of in this world. I agree. So, for this episode, Zach, uh, I gave it an 80%. Luke gave it a 57%. And you gave it a 77%. The final letter grade of the third episode of Murder Among the Mormons is a 71%, which is a B-. And, of course, we use Carleton University's grading scale. Go Ravens. That was a raven that got its tail plucked out. Now it is time for us to reveal next week's piece of garbage. I mean, media. Would you like a drum roll? No. I'm going to get one anyways, though. Uh, This is our... Okay, here it comes. This is our first recommended movie. Uh, It was recommended to us by one of my favorite people in the world, Katie. Uh, Stop doing that. I'm talking. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a drum roll. I don't need one. Next week, we are going to watch the movie Rotten Tomatoes called Cheap Looking, Unfunny, and Kind of Sexist to Boot. 
You guessed it. It's 2014's Mom's Night Out, which is a disappointment from start to finish. <laughs> now, the reason why I think we're, we're qualified to, to, to review this is because, unless I'm mistaken, all of us at one point of our lives have had or currently has a mother. Um, except for Scott, who has grown because of nuclear runoff in the Ohio River before they started to clean it up a little bit. I have C8 poisoning. Uh, I have a mother, but she doesn't clean me. He's the reason why the Cuyahoga caught on fire that one time. He was was born from that. (laughs) Here's the synopsis. Hardworking mom Allison has a crazy night out with her friends while her husband's Watch their children. Mom, Dad's playing in the toilet again. Surprise! Dad's laying in the toilet. Yes. Oh, he's oh no, no, no! He's gonna put that in his mouth and become one of the four hundred estimated people that die from acute salmonella. Do not put that finger in your. Well, you having a rough morning? Tell me it's all gonna be okay. It's all gonna be okay. Just give it five years. Year seven or five. <laughs> You have to choose to do hey, something. Hey, it's Rudy. I planned this uh, mom's night Rudy. for Saturday. You planned a mom's night? Yes, sister. <laughs> What's the worst thing that can happen? They could get maimed. I could lose both children. <laughs> it's getting odd in here. Yeah, because dads can't watch their kids. Wow, you look amazing. I hate this movie Ladies, already. tonight is our night. <laughs> Good. I cannot find your reservation. Alright, that was the chicken. Um, with my friends without three yeah, it's pure flick. They just recycle the same pair of whackers. Angry <laughs> and it's doing something ugly to your face. <laughs> Joey, you're supposed to be watching our baby. Who has him? Oh, He's at the tattoo parlor. Who would bring the baby to a tattoo parlor? That's dumb. I know. Right? That is real <laughs> Okay, so here's the plan. We take him inside, get their hands stamped, and they can't get out. Like Shawshank. <laughs> Both boats, my baby. I called Caprice, and Caprice said she'd take him. Where's the van? Oh, I had tonight playing out differently in my mind. We got a baby to find. This looks, uh, I thought it was going to go in a different like, direction. the baby? I don't know. <laughs> Allie, it's me. Uh, just wanted to let you know that everything's going great here. We're all good. Um, we're going to take a little trip to the hospital. Oh, Dad, they're just Life so stupid. They can't watch the kids. And the joy and the purpose in all the chaos. Hun, your job. It's hard, I know. Important. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> That's my van! Get the van! The van! Then let go of the wheel. This has been the worst night ever. I honestly don't know how it could get any worse. <laughs> how dare you? My husband is passionate. Sir, he just came in here and started. <laughs> <laughs> that was an accident. Oh, shit. That's going to do it for the Rotten or Righteous podcast. Uh, I'm Zach Geiler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Scott Judge. And I'm still Joseph Smith. <laughs> you seem to have forgotten your name a little bit there, Joe. 
Yeah, you were like, I'm Joseph <laughs> Smith. <laughs> I'm getting old, yeah, you know. Well, 200 years will do that to you. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we go, I didn't realize how apt this uh, ending was actually going to be to, because of the discussion we had, but here we go. Uh, before we go, a child asked his father, Dad, how were people born? And his dad said, well, Adam and Eve made babies, and their babies became adults and made more babies and, and so on and so forth. And then the child went to his mom and, and asked her the same question, and she told him, well, we were monkeys, and then we uh, evolved to become like we are now. And the child runs back to his dad and said, you lied to me. We came from monkeys. And his father said, no, 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 you misunderstand that your mom's side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Here, here. <laughs> oh. We now turn to the thrilling adventure of Scott trying to justify why he watched episodes of Murder Among the Mormons weeks before he was supposed to. Well, no, I didn't do that. But were you talking about one episode of the time of Murder Amongst the Mormons or the Rotten Righteous episode? What? Because I may have screwed that up. I thought you meant that we couldn't have two video devices to watch them together. I only watched them one episode at a time. I want you to know that you're a liar, and I know you're a liar, and you're going to go to hell if you don't repent. (laughs) I've got two things. I watch them episode at a time, and technically we can watch them on Thursday. After the podcast records. Uh, That is a big prepositional word that sometimes those make me confused. Interesting. The the word after? After is a hard one, isn't it? Yes, it is, because I knew it was Thursday, so I thought I'd be okay. You're an idiot. And then You're a lying idiot. You were so captured by the dra- the drama and saga of Mark Hoffman that you just couldn't stop. I'll be That's honest. After after episode two, I really was. Yeah. I was crying through episode one, literally. But so, episode two, it, it it sucked me in. It was a very good documentary, and it took a little bit of self control not to go ahead and watch every episode just back to back. Hey, why not do it? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Broke the rules. I've already done it. Are you going to be able to forgive him, Zach? Yeah, Scott. Next week, I'm going to forget all about him. No, no, no. I didn't say forget. I said forgive. Sure. If Mark Hoffman calls me up and asks me to forgive him, yes, you'll forgive if him. If he does that, will you teach? Yeah. Will you teach him? Will you teach him the gospel? Sure, will. I don't promise. I'll probably drown him in the baptistry, but I'll teach him. <laughs> He'll be saved at that point. You have to come up out of well, the. I'll pull him up real quick, just in case. And then <laughs> give him one of those Mary Magdalene <laughs> triple Duncans. Ha <laughs> 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 <sighs>